0: Anyone who has spent time working on a project quickly realizes that the best work is accomplished when the right tool is used. So the goal is not to have a fancy or expensive tool that serves no purpose in completing the task at hand. So you shouldn't value the tool beyond its function. So while I might want to convince my wife that I need a brand-new table saw to put new brakes on the car. (laughs) It's just obvious that while I may, in fact, need a new wrench or ratchet or some other tool, I do not need a new table saw because it has nothing to do with changing the brakes on the car. So purchasing a high-quality, expensive tool for a project that doesn't need it is really pointless and foolish. Well, this concept transfers to other areas of life, including church life, and it helps us better understand what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 14. In this chapter, and in chapters 12 and 13, he's been responding to division within the church surrounding the spiritual gifts. And Paul is just reminding the Corinthian church that spiritual gifts are simply tools. They're tools for a larger project, which is to strengthen and build the church. Now, The main gifts or tools that Paul discusses here are the gifts of prophecy and the gift of speaking in tongues or languages. And the main goal or the main project is strengthening the church and evangelizing the lost it becomes clear that the Corinthian church had been prizing the wrong gift, the wrong tool, emphasizing speaking in tongues over against prophecy and service. As such, the project of building the church was not being completed. So they were trying to use a table saw to change the brakes. They were using the gifts in an inappropriate way. Now, before we can consider chapter 14 fully, we just have to stop and talk about spiritual gifts as a whole. We did this a little bit months ago as we looked at 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 are all part of the same conversation. So sometimes we, in our mind, split 1 Corinthians 13 off as the wedding sermon chapter, 1 Corinthians 12 is like the actual service chapter, and 1 Corinthians 14 is the chapter we ignore, but they all go together. So we've got to talk about spiritual gifts as a whole. Now the Bible references spiritual gifts often, uh, but there's very little to help us distinguish between a spiritual gift and a natural ability. So that's a challenge and some really stress not, dis- not merging the two, but distinguishing them. And I think what's happened is over the past several decades, there's been an interest in discovering your spiritual gift. And so spiritual gift tests have been developed that are really not very much different than an Enneagram test or a Myers-Briggs personality test. And it becomes a spiritualized personality thing because the Bible doesn't provide us a lot of help in distinguishing between a spiritual gift and a natural ability or strength, I think that it's best to avoid a sharp distinction between the two, as well as avoid becoming overly invested in personality tests or spiritual gift tests. I think it's better to think in terms of the Holy Spirit working through you with whatever supernatural or natural abilities you have and to think of a spiritual gift in those terms. So instead of spending a lot of time trying to determine what abilities you have post-conversion that you didn't have pre-conversion or taking spirituality tests or personality tests, I think it's better just to say wherever I can sense God using me somewhere, a spiritual gift is on display because it's only God that empowers this lasting work. So then don't allow your perceived lack of ability in an area, keep you from serving Christ in that way, nor should you confine yourself to only serving in areas that you perceive yourself to be gifted in. So you might not think of yourself as gifted in the area of helping somebody. Or evangelism, well, God still calls you to help and evangelize. And so don't let this obsession with determining a spiritual gift shape what you do and do not participate in in the life of a church. Now, there's generally been a distinction made between general gifts, like helping or service or evangelism, and special gifts or miraculous gifts, such as healing, prophecy and speaking in tongues or in other languages. And it's this latter categorization that Paul focuses on in 1 Corinthians 14, especially on the gift of prophecy and speaking in tongues. Now there is a lot of modern day controversy over these gifts. And there's a lot of arguing about what those gifts actually are. So we need to be gracious to others who take a different position on this issue than we do and we can only sp- I can only speak here in terms of my position, and we can cover this topic in a Bible class someday. I, on our website, if you want to investigate spiritual gifts more, there's a book review of a really, or a book summary of a really helpful gift, book on the spiritual gifts by Tom Schreiner. So if you're interested in that, we can point you that way, or I'd be happy just to sit down and talk about these things over a cup of coffee or something else. But I don't think that we should look at the special gifts in the way that Pentecostal churches would approach them. So in my view, the gift of speaking in tongues referenced in 1 Corinthians is the gift of being able to communicate in a language otherwise unknown to the speaker. So the individual speaking the language not known to them would either be understood by a native speaker Or there would be someone who had the gift of interpretation who would translate that language so that the language would be meaningful. So that Pentecostal idea of speaking gibberish or ecstatic utterances, I don't believe is speaking in tongues. In part, because in those settings, the speakers appear to have no control over those utterances. But in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul instructs the gifted individual to exercise control over the gift. And so the gift never controls the gifted individual. The gifted individual always exercises control over the gift. But then Paul also speaks of prophecy. And again, there's debate over what prophecy is here. There's debate about the nature of this as a spiritual gift, especially in relationship to the office of a prophet is depicted in the old Testament at the risk of being overly simplistic. I think it's best just to understand prophecy as communicating a word from the Lord. It's hard sometimes to distinguish between what prophecy or a word of knowledge or teaching is in the way that Paul references. And maybe there's some overlap there but whatever the exact nature of prophecy was is described here becomes clear that prophecy was first subject to the apostolic teaching and the revealed scriptures. So whatever prophecy was, it did not supersede scripture or replace scripture. Second, the individuals giving the prophecy were indeed fallible. And unlike the Old Testament prophets, they were simply exercising a gift. They weren't holding an office. So they were fallible individuals, as such Paul instructs for these prophecies to be tested. But then finally, the individual exercising that gift of prophecy has control over the gift. And so in contrast to many modern individuals who claim to have the gift of prophecy and who have no control over speaking or withholding from speaking a prophecy. Paul suggests that the gift of prophecy was to be controlled by the gifted individual. Now for all of the confusion that surrounds prophecy and speaking in tongues, the purpose of both of these gifts was essentially the same. And that was to communicate a word from the Lord in an intelligible and understandable way that would serve to strengthen God's people, to build up the church and to reach the lost. So bringing all of that together, there's confusion and debate here, but at least that much is clear. The purpose was to strengthen the church, to reach the lost and ultimately to give glory to God our final word of introduction before we can get to the text. We need to frame our discussion here because this text is really quite challenging. There's a reason very often for first Corinthians 14 is just largely ignored. The letter that Paul is writing in this section in particular is what we refer to as an occasional letter. That means that there was an occasion or an event that happened that Paul was responding to. So it's not as if Paul is writing a systematic theology on spiritual gifts here. He's responding to a special problem within a church, and he's giving specific instructions to combat that problem. Furthermore, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth within living memory of Christ's death and resurrection. So at this time, there are individuals who were alive, who had witnessed Christ's death and resurrection, who had met him post-resurrection. Perhaps none at Corinth had, but there were living people who could testify to the work of Christ. So there's really still in this time frame the ushering in of a new age. There's a the breaking in of the kingdom in pre-death and resurrection of Christ that movement was authenticated by signs and miracles. And so it's not surprising that immediately following in the years following Christ's resurrection, the frequency of such miraculous gifts, such as these signs speaking in tongues, like in Acts two and these other miracles and prophecies were just a lot more common. I think that it, it was common because it was ushering in this new age. So we might wonder Why do we not see the same sort of miraculous healings and prophecies and other type of things today? I think largely in part, it has to do with the ushering in of this new age and the establishment of the church across the world. And perhaps that's why even today, there are credible testimonies of missionaries in regions that have never had the gospel Spread there, who are testifying of such miraculous things of, as dreams in these unbelievers who are becoming convinced of the gospel in, in that way. And so I think wherever we see the gospel going to a new place, or where we look back in history at Christ's coming and resurrection in the timeframe that followed, we would expect to see more of this miraculous gifting. Where the church has become established, where the gospel has taken root and the word of God is proclaimed, it seems that there's less of a need to authenticate in the same way as there was in times past. Finally, these spiritual gifts were on display in societies that believed in the supernatural, such that a supernatural event was likely to prod them on toward belief in God, to say God is really here. I think that in nations and in cultures where it is purely naturalistic, that is where individuals don't believe in the supernatural, perhaps God determines not to employ these gifts in the same way because instead of causing people to say, God is here, those who reject the supernatural altogether say, these people are crazy and leave. Now, this is just speculation, but we just read church history and say there's been a diminishing evidence of supernatural gifts over time, and we have to trust God in that. Some of us are probably more prone to be happy about that. Some of us are more prone to want to see these miraculous works, but we have to say that God apportions the gifts as he wills, and he employs them according to his time frame and his desire. That brings us then to 1 Corinthians 14. And I think there are two main points that Paul is trying to make in this text. The first is that spiritual gifts are intended to be used for the good of the assembly. And then the second is that spiritual gifts must be exercised in submission and in an orderly manner. So these are the two main points that we'll consider this morning. I've provided you a handout that kind of follows the flow of 1 Corinthians 14. Follow along if that helps, but if you ever get lost in where we are, just look at the screen and remember the point that we're on and and the point that I think Paul is trying to make. So first, spiritual gifts are intended to be used for the good of the assembly. So as I mentioned, 1 Corinthians 14 is not disconnected from chapter 13. All that is said about love, all that Josh just read from 1 Corinthians 13 supports Paul's assertion that the spiritual gift should be used to build up the assembly. As such, he begins chapter 14 with the words, pursue love, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. And especially that you may prophesy for the person who speaks in another tongue is not speaking to people, but to God, since no one understands him, he speaks mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the person who prophesies speaks to other people for their strengthening, encouragement, and consolation. The person who speaks in another tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I wish that all of you spoke in other tongues, but even more that you prophesied. The person who prophesies is greater than the person who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so that the church may be built up. So Paul's concern that the gifts be used for building up of the assembly is just clear here. Now, some take Paul's comments that the one speaking in tongues speaks to God and builds himself up as entirely positive and instructive for devotional life. I think when we look at Paul's argument here, he says something negative and then something positive. So the fact that the one speaking in a tongue without interpretation speaks to God and perhaps in some way builds himself up is not a positive comment. It's more of a concession and dismissive comment. He wants to urge them on to think about speaking in an intelligible way. Now, furthermore, some take Paul's wish that all of them would speak in other languages or in other tongues to mean that this gift should be earnestly pursued by all Christians. Yet, I think that we need to hear this wish of Paul in the same way that we hear his wish in, verse, in chapter 7, verse 7, that all would remain unmarried. So there Paul says, I wish that all of you would remain as I am which is as an unmarried individual here, Paul is saying, I wish that all of you would speak in tongues. It's a desire that's framed by a particular situation in the church. So it's clear in these first few verses is the main point. Pursue love, desire the spiritual gift of prophecy over against the gift of tongues because prophecy more readily contributes to the strengthening of the church. So then he moves on in verses six through 12 to illustrate his point. So now brothers and sisters, if I come to you speaking in other tongues, how will I benefit you unless I speak to you with a revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? So here he's simply referring to communicating a word from the Lord in an understandable, intelligible way. Even lifeless instruments that produce sounds, whether flute or harp, if they don't make a distinction in the notes, how will what is played on the flute or harp be recognized? So he first illustrates his point by talking about music and instruments. So if an instrumentalist is trying to play a song, but they're not making clear sounds or not playing the right notes, how will anyone know what song is being played? So there might be benefit in that there's noise and it's encouraging to play the music, but it's not communicating and no one understands what song is being played. So then verse eight, in fact, if the bugle makes an unclear sound, who will prepare for battle? In the same way, unless you use your tongue for intelligible speech, how will what is spoken be known? For you'll be speaking into the air. So in the second illustration, he recalls to mind the, the soldier who's a bugler, who gives commands on the battlefields through the notes on a bugle. Well, if that soldier doesn't play clear notes, or if he plays the wrong ones, the soldiers won't know what to do. Instead of soldiers getting out of their barracks and on the battlefield in the right formation, they'll be in the wrong formation or they won't get out at all. In the same way, the individual who speaks in a tongue or in an unknown language communicates nothing meaningful to those who are listening. They don't know how to respond and they don't know what to do. So then Paul brings it in verse 10 more pointedly back to languages. There are doubtless many different kinds of languages in the world. None is without meaning. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker will be a foreigner to me. So all he's saying here is that foreign languages are meaningful if you know what they mean. So those sounds that you might hear when you're you know, out at a restaurant or somewhere else in a language you don't understand doesn't lack meaning in that language. It just lacks meaning to you because you don't understand what's being said. And I think that this is precisely what's happening in the church. Individuals are using this gift of languages. Chrysostom uses the example of an individual speaking Persian in a Greek speaking church. That Persian language has no meaning for Greek speakers in the same way that if I began reading out of my Greek New Testament before all of you, generally speaking, it would be meaningless. Not because the Greek New Testament is meaningless, but simply because you haven't learned the Greek language. The result then would be that instead of speaking as among the family of God, you begin to speak as among foreigners. So instead of using a spiritual gift to relate to others as God's family and to welcome others into God's family, the gift was causing division because it was creating a foreign relationship between the speaker and the listener. So then Paul reemphasizes his main point in verse 12. So also you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to excel in building up the church. So don't seek to excel necessarily in speaking in a foreign language or in finding a particular gift to be recognized as having instead seek to excel in building up the church. So he brings this point home. Tongues are valuable. Other languages are valuable, but they're not helpful in the gathered assembly without interpretation. So it's, good to be zealous for manifestations of the spirit. It's good to be zealous to use spiritual gift as a mechanism for strengthening the church, but don't value the tool over the project. If you want to see God's spirit at work through you, seek to excel in building up the church. How do we do that? How do we seek to excel in building up the church? I have three suggestions for you that are general and you have to take them and think about what that looks like for you in particular. But first, focus your attention on building up the church rather than on using a particular gift to build up the church. So instead of focusing on building up the church in a particular way through a particular gift set, Focus on giving all that you have and all that you are to strengthening the assembly. Do not believe the lie that you must be gifted in a particular way to contribute meaningfully, nor should you believe the lie that you can only serve in an area that you have particular gifting in. Instead, conscientiously determined to serve wherever you find an opportunity to do so. Be willing to serve in an area outside of your expertise and also be willing to serve in areas that would leverage expertise that you have. Whether that's expertise that you have in the public workforce, at home, or as a hobby. Just leverage all that you have and all that you are to meet needs wherever you find them. So that's number one, focus your attention on simply building up the church instead of building it up in a particular way. Number two, push yourself beyond your comfort zone. Push yourself beyond your comfort zone. Think that one of the best ways to determine your spiritual gifts and then to leverage those gifts for the strengthening of the church is simply to take opportunities as they arise. And the most challenging part about this is just showing up. Say 90% of success is just showing up. 90% of building the assembly is just showing up. And as you do this, I think you will discover areas in which you were naturally gifted and simply because you never tried it before you never knew. So as opportunities arise in the church and you plug into it, I think you'll discover that by the work of the spirit, you're able to serve effectively in that role. At other times, you'll attempt to serve in a way and you'll find out that you are clearly whatever the opposite of gifted is in that role. And that's okay. But push yourself beyond your comfort zone and then allow others to give you feedback because determining what your spiritual gifts are is not a matter that stays between you and an internet spiritual gift test. It's a matter between you and the body of Christ. So let your brothers and sisters in Christ be involved in helping you know where you're gifted, where you're not and how you can best serve the church. Third, Focus your attention on relating to others in terms of the fruit of the spirit rather than in terms of the gifts of the spirit. The fruit of the spirit is in its own right a gift of the spirit. It's fruit that's on display in our life only by the working of God. But seek to relate to those in the assembly with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control if you want to see manifestations of the spirit relate to others guided by the fruit of the spirit. So instead of seeking to accumulate a resume of spiritual gifts, seek to cultivate relationships in which you express these fruits of the spirit. And as you pursue love as Paul's main command in this whole chapter is as you pursue love, you will find yourself contributing in meaningful ways to the building up of the body of Christ. So if you want to strive to excel at building up the church, focus your attention on that project, push yourself beyond your comfort zone and focus on relating to others in terms of the fruit of the spirit. So Paul's made this point twice and now he's going to go on to apply the principle to the specific situation at Corinth. Verse 13. Therefore, the person who speaks in another tongue should pray that he can interpret. For if I pray in another tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What then? I will pray with my spirit and I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing praise with the spirit and I will also sing praise with my understanding. Otherwise, if you praise with the spirit, how will the outsider say amen at your giving of thanks since he does not know what you are saying for you may very well be giving thanks, but the other person is not being built up. Paul instructs that fruitful worship and the strengthening of the church will be both intelligible and spirit empowered. He goes on in verse 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding in order to teach others also than 10,000 words in another tongue. So here, as in other places, Paul just references his own example. There's a pattern in 1 Corinthians of Paul referencing his own lifestyle that emphasizes his missionary ministry of reaching the lost. And I think that's what's in view here as well, especially as Paul talks about the impact of spiritual gifts on unbelievers. So I'm inclined to think that Paul utilized the gift of speaking in tongues or of speaking in languages. On his missionary journeys, as he preached the gospel to those who were foreigners to him. So, if this is the case, then Paul used this gift to invite foreigners into God's family, which is a sharp contrast to the Corinthians who use the gift of speaking in tongues to treat God's family as foreigners. So when Paul talks about him using the gift more than all of them, I think the context is in speaking to individuals in their native tongue, in their native language, even though he didn't know that language himself. So he then presses this point further, calling the church to spiritual maturity and awareness of their impact on outsiders and unbelievers. Verse 20. Brothers and sisters, don't be childish in your thinking, but be infants in regard to evil and adult in your thinking. This mirrors what Josh read in 1 Corinthians 13 about putting away childish things. It is written in the law, I will speak to this people by to this people by people of other tongues and by the lips of foreigners, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Speaking in other tongues then is intended as a sign Not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church assembles together and all are speaking in another tongue and people who are outsiders or unbelievers come in, won't they say that you are out of your minds? But if all are prophesying and some unbeliever or outsider comes in, he is convicted by all and is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart will be revealed. And as a result, he will fall face down and worship God, proclaiming, God is really among you. Now, Paul's argument becomes a little bit challenging here, especially as he paraphrases Isaiah 28, verses 11 through 12. But we can trace his argument in this way He begins by saying that speaking in tongues is a sign for unbelievers and not believers. Speaking in tongues is a sign for unbelievers in this way. When the ancient Israelites, that is God's covenant people, broke his covenant, they are to be thought of as unbelievers. They are unbelievers in God. They're unbelievers in his covenant promises. So they break his covenant and very often worship false gods. And as covenant breakers, they could expect to face the curses in the covenant stipulations including the curse of being exiled from the land and placed in subjugation to foreigners. So as such, when these unbelieving Israelites heard the language of a foreign people talking to them, they were being taken into captivity, and this was a sign of God's judgment. They didn't listen to God's speech, and now they hear a speech they don't understand Thus, speaking in tongues is a sign of God's judgment on unbelievers, not for believers. That's what Paul's, I think, trying to say here in referencing this text in Isaiah. Prophecy, on the other hand, is a sign for believers rather than unbelievers. Prophecy, when heard by an individual who might even at that present moment be a non-Christian or an unbeliever, When prophecy is heard by that individual, it reveals truth and pierces to their heart such that the individual who was once opposed to God now listens to his voice, hears it clearly, and as a result, changes in their identification from unbeliever to believer. So tongues are a sign of God's judgment on those who once confessed belief in God and now are receiving his judgment and their unbelief. Prophecy is a sign of God's grace to someone who was once an unbeliever and is now through that prophecy being transferred into the realm of faith. So Paul in this section connects unintelligibility to unbelief and intelligibility to belief. And in so doing, he he presses the Corinthians to think about their relationship to each other and about their special responsibility to communicate the gospel clearly to outsiders and to unbelievers. Ultimately, he's saying as believers, you hearing someone speak in a tongue that's foreign to you is closer to a sign of judgment than a sign of grace. And as an unbeliever walks into the door, if they hear speech that they can understand, it's a sign of God's grace to them. So Paul ultimately wants them to be mature in their thinking on this point. Christians can tend to be immature in their thinking. And as a result, they order their life together in a way that serves only themselves in these short-sighted desires. Eventually turning them into an ingrown church that can't see themselves from the perspective of anybody else. We need to work hard to avoid this same error. As a church and as individuals, I think we need to regularly attempt to evaluate our life in our gatherings as an assembly from the perspective of an outsider. Whether it's someone who's curious about Christianity or opposed to Christianity, I think that we need to try to look at what they are going to be receiving when they walk into this building. And then I think we need to make adjustments to remove unnecessary hurdles or barriers or obstacles to the proclamation of the gospel. Now, I am not suggesting that we should orient every area of our church life to provide an environment that will simply make someone comfortable. Paul did not tell these individuals not to speak clearly. He said, speak in a way that pierces to the heart and reveals truth about God. So I'm not suggesting that we water down the gospel or communicate that, that you know, sin and opposition to God is normal. We should not communicate in a way that embraces unrighteousness. But very often churches can over time add certain traditions and elements to the life of their assembly that have nothing to do with the gospel and serve only to push others away from them and create a small ingrown clique. That's especially prone to happen in a small assembly. So we need to work hard to welcome strangers and unbelievers just as we were welcomed by Christ. We remove obstacles and we keep genuine stumbling blocks to the gospel there. So it's sometimes hard to determine what's a stumbling block and what's a stepping stone, right? So we, we don't remove the stones that allow someone to step into truth, but we remove the stumbling blocks that keep them from doing so. Sometimes this means that you replace hard, uncomfortable pews that keep someone from listening to a sermon or participating in a service and replace them with chairs that provide some element of comfort. Sometimes this means that you spend money to make your property look a little bit better so it doesn't serve as an obstacle. Other times this means that you remain steadfast in your preaching of the gospel, even if someone will call you bigoted and hateful. So our number one point here is that our spiritual gifts are intended to be used for the good of the assembly. In the last shorter section of the chapter, Paul then pushes them to understand that spiritual gifts must be exercised in submission and in an an orderly manner. So in verses 26 through 33, he begins to paint a scene, a hypothetical picture where everyone is exercising gifts without order or submission. He writes, what then, verse 26, brothers and sisters, whenever you come together, each one has a hymn, a teaching, a revelation, another tongue, or an interpretation, everything is to be done for building up. He's made this point now three times very clearly. If anyone speaks in another tongue, there are to be only two or at the most three, each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no interpreter, that person is to keep silent in the church and speak to himself and God. Two or three prophets should speak and the others should evaluate. But if something has been revealed to another person sitting there, the first prophet should be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that everyone may learn and everyone may be encouraged. And the prophets' spirits are subject to the prophets since God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. So he's just giving specific application. The church at Corinth must change their practices in their worship gatherings. They're to institute order and apply careful discernment to the use of spiritual gifts in their corporate gatherings. And in this way, their gatherings would now be intelligible and understandable and truth could be proclaimed effectively. So specific application to that church. Now he provides even more narrow specific application to you, a segment of that church in verses 33 through 36. He's addressing an issue apparently where certain women and perhaps wives of some of the men who were prophesying that were creating some kind of a disturbance that not only broke the order and peace in the assembly, but also expressed some level of marital disharmony. So Paul instructs in verse 33, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should be silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but are to submit themselves as the law also says. If they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, since it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Or did the word of God originate from you? Or did it come from you only? So Paul's addressing a a particular group of women here who are engaging in prophesying in a problematic manner. And this is pointed application to them. Now I think most likely these women were verbally disrespecting their husbands or critically engaging in the leadership of the church in the evaluation of prophecy. Paul instructs for these women to be silent and to submit to their husbands not only at home, but also in the assembly. Now, we've got to work a little bit here because I don't think that this command for the women to be silent in the church is an all-encompassing command. Because earlier in chapter 11, verses 2 through 16, Paul seems to encourage the participation of women in prayer and prophecy, so long as they did it appropriately according to the custom of their day with head coverings on. We discuss this when we considered chapter 11 verses two through 16. And I think we need to take the two together here. We need to bring his comments together where on the one hand, he encourages women to pray and prophesy. And on the other hand here, he encourages, I think some of the women to stop perpetuating disorder, and to be silent. There are two immediate points of reflection here. First, as a church, we should not hesitate to encourage women in the assembly to participate in our gatherings in prayer. It's difficult to approximate what prophecy is, especially given debate over the exact definition of prophecy. But if we understand it in simple terms, as in communicating a word from the Lord, I think the closest approximation to prophecy is simply reading the scripture, the revealed prophetic word of God. As such, I think that it should be our desire to encourage women to participate meaningfully in our gatherings as members of God's family In prayer and in the reading of scripture, I think that's right. I think Paul commends it here, and I don't think that it violates the gender role descriptions that are laid out through the rest of the New Testament. Now, as Paul mentions here, it must be done appropriately both in chapter 11, according to the social custom of that time. And I think contextually here in chapter 14 in a way that does not disrespect or dishonor their husbands, but it appears that within the God-given gender roles, there is some level of overlap here that includes both men and women in prayer and prophecy. And I think the closest approximation for those two categories here is leading the assembly in prayer and in the reading of scripture. The second point of reflection building on that is that that participation in prayer and prophecy or what have you is to be appropriate. And this again draws our attention to the particular context that Paul's addressing. We don't know every issue that's there these verses were really clear to that church. They knew who these women are, but we have to take both chapter 11 and chapter 14 together and say that women are encouraged to participate, but to do it in a way that is not self glorifying attention, drawing or statement making. So after narrowing his application, then Paul shifts his attention back to the assembly at large. In verse 37, he says, If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should recognize that what I write to you is the Lord's command. If anyone ignores this, he will be ignored. So then my brothers and sisters be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in other tongues, but everything is to be done decently and in order. So Paul closes out his argument in this section, just simply realizing that some are going to push back on his instruction. But these individuals need to remember that Paul is speaking authoritatively. He is giving a word from the Lord. And so if someone postures themselves as a prophet, one who communicates God's word, then they ought to submit to this word that Paul just gave if they're genuinely spiritual, they'll submit to the teaching of the spirit of God here. This is a challenging text. This is a challenging passage. And I think there's much more that could be explored here, but we must not lose Paul's main points that we must leverage all that we have and all that we are for the good of the church. Spiritual gifts are to be used to build up the church. And spiritual gifts are to be exercised in submission and in an orderly manner. Let's close by just asking God to do this in us to allow each of us to give ourselves over to strengthening the body of Christ, to relating to each other in the fruit of the spirit and doing all things in decency and in order such that the church would be encouraged, such that outsiders would be strengthened and such that the lost would come to faith.